This is Shaka Artspeak. Welcome to Shaka Artspeak. I'm here with Dr. Snacksmell. What's up? <laughs> and uh, just so you, what's up? Did not expect that. And just so you know, he ate the last of our snacks. Sorry, guys. And um, they did smell because they were corn nuts. Yeah. And they were like, they what, were which good. kind were they? It was like, I don't know, some sort of like picante. A, yeah, some like chili picante. Yeah, chili I, picante. I don't understand because I feel like all corn nuts just taste the same. I agree with that. They They're, just taste like corn. Yeah, they just changed the color of the packaging, but they do. Taste is darn near similar every time. Same thing. It yeah. tastes like. It tastes like corn nuts have been living on an aisle next to Doritos. Yeah. But they've no, never touched. I was going to say the same thing. It's the same colored powder, mm-hmm. except you have like so much more corn flavor. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't know, man. There's something about them. This is not what the episode's about, but whatever. We're yeah. Whatever. Uh, they're, uh, they're like a, they, they bother me, mm-hmm. but I eat them. But you eat them. When they're around. Yeah. But they have this like weird nostalgic factor because it's something that always feels like, even like when you look at their branding, it still feels like you're buying them in 1997. I agree. I mean, there's like a, there's a very heavy like 90s nostalgia to them. And they're not, I mean, sorry if you're listening out there, producers of corn nuts, but they're not a good snack. No. But. But you eat them. But you eat them. Yeah. It's like eating a, a, a tooth. <laughs> I mean, I've got plenty of experience with that. Yeah. No, it's just. <laughs> 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 I don't even know where to go with that. <laughs> I mean, that's what, it, that's what they look like, dude. Imagine just like replacing your teeth with corn nuts and smiling at somebody. I mean, there it is. That's the worst. <laughs> that's the worst thing I've thought of today. <laughs> oh, I think that resonates. Hey, here's the corn nut challenge. I want you all out there to draw us a portrait. And I want you to have your, I want you to smile and replace your teeth with corn nuts. And let's see who draws the best image or paints the best image. Dude, there's your. And oh we'll gosh. post it and we'll announce the winner. The yeah, corn nut I, portrait challenge. Dude, let's go. I, I think for your drawing class, that's a new assignment. I think it might be. It's like they're, they're gigantic, uh, large format uh, portraits. portraits are going to be corn nut smiles. Corn nut smiles. All right. <laughs> so there we go. See, that's, that's called generativity. <laughs> that's it. It always comes back. It always comes back to being generative. <laughs> new ideas are always birthed. Out of willingness to step into the unknown. So we've already said that this is not what this episode's about. So right. what, what are we actually going to talk well, about today? You know, we were just talking and, and uh, I had to leave um, and take a... So if you, people, folks that know me know that I'm a, typically a scaredy cat when it comes to driving. And I have an older vehicle. And so there's some hesitation there about doing this. But, you know, um, the the truth is we had the, we made the choice to drive to Wisconsin for a funeral for my wife's grandmother. And so we've been gone for 10 days and, uh, we decided to drive, not a short trip, not a short trip. So 12 hours, first day, eight out, like stop in Indiana, eight hours the next day, get to Wisconsin, stay for a few days, see family. We don't know that well. So the whole neat story there is really good time to connect, uh, over, you know, just a lot of years. And, and then we drove back and we kind of took our time. So we, yeah, drove mm, to Madison, stayed for a few hours, saw a friend, and then drove into Indiana and stayed for a day in Indiana. And so when we stayed in the day in Indiana, there's a couple of things that really stood out to me that I just want just musing on when you and I were talking. One of them was we saw we saw a zoo. Yeah. And the zoo looked really new. And there were, it was a modest zoo. It's like the kind of zoo you can get through in about two hours. Yeah. But it was you know, it was it was great. I know there's different feelings about zoos, but you know, um, in some ways, you're like, goodness, there's so many endangered species that you're. Mm-hmm. Th- in some ways, you're like, this is sad, and also, I'm glad someone's 
preserving some of these yeah, yeah, incredible, incredible animals. Um, so it's a whole messy topic, but they were building a new area and a lot of things looked really new. So I was like, whoa, you know, this must be a newish zoo. And we asked somebody and they're like, it was a hundred, it's a hundred year old zoo. Jeez. And that was really encouraging to me in the sense that here is this well-kept hundred year old, very humble, uh, deal in the middle of a neighborhood in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think because we are a nonprofit that have been building and doing things and are 10 years in, but have like a 50 year plan and you kind of hope things last and you can't predict that, but you, you'd like to uh, angle in that direction. I think I, you know, for a lot of reasons, I was pretty inspired by that. So that's just one thing. Mm-hmm. Then the other one was we decided we wanted to, um, see the campus of Notre Dame. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think of when you think of Notre Dame in your mind? Uh, Rudy. Rudy, hundred percent, hundred percent, all day. Yes, Rudy Rudiger. Yeah. So if you, yeah. So Rudy is is totally there. I didn't bring it up with my family because none of them know the movie. Yeah, I mean, um, Samwise games he plays football. It's yeah, amazing. it's amazing. And uh, one of my fa- sides, one of my favorite stories is is we were fre- going into our freshman year of college, and my best friend Bud was going to go play college football, and then got in a car accident, went to the military, and then came back to play college football later, mm-hmm. but. We came over and he had been drinking and he's just sitting on the couch in his bat in his like basketball shorts with a football. And we walk in, he's watching Rudy and he's just crying. And he's like, Rudy, Rudy. And me and my friends are dying. He's just in the zone, dude, drunk, crying, watching Rudy and just whimpering the words Rudy. True story, dude. Um, anyhow, I, mean, I, I understand that. I mean, I don't know how you can't watch that. The underdog, man. Like, Come on. Yeah, dude, it's just such a such a you know the the compelling story of the underdog. I'll tell you what, the University of Notre Dame is not an underdog as far as the architecture and the the flow of the place. And so, yeah, we were just talking about it and figured, you know, it, it, there's a couple of things that I think are really interesting and worth talking about. Mm-hmm. And um, one is the campus is gigantic, and it's it has to be one of the most beautiful campuses in America. It just has to be. I mean, the photos look amazing. Yeah, it's just gigantic. Um, and you know, it's a Catholic school. Um, and I, I don't know when the school was founded and, but we were walking around and I was like, you know, what's crazy is this is this, I'm just making this up. Like I said this without, with ignorance, but I was like, it's crazy is like, this probably started in like a carriage house and over the years, because of the vision it expanded into this, this magnanimous campus. Um, but what was really compelling was the architecture design in detail and not even that I prefer it just that it was done with such specificity, uh, detail and total vision. And you don't see that very often anymore. We were in Indiana and the city planning there was horrible. Mm. The, the roads were horrible. Like it was noticeable. Yeah. And so, you know, we started, my wife and I started to talk about how, how, uh, um, like what is the, you know, in our kids, like what is the organizing principle? that creates a place like this. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and so maybe a couple of things that stuck out to me, you know, well, one was a quote that we're walking inside in one of the domes. It's got a religious, you know, everything's got a religious overtone to it. Yeah. And we're looking at just the detail, the paneling on the walls mm-hmm. in the way the door doorways are, are, are designed and handcrafted. And, and my 11 year old, I got I told her I was going to quote, quote her in my book that I'm working on or possibly just name even a chapter after this. But um, 
me see. She put, we don't, she was just walking. So we're walking through a hallway that takes time, by the way. Yeah. So you're walking slowly. And if you're going to note, like there's more there to the notice than oftentimes we're afford, we will afford the time to, right? Like, it's like, there's so much there to look at. There's that it, it, modern sensibilities wouldn't permit us to slow down and look. Right. But because it's the summer and we've committed time, we're walking slowly through these places that are just utilitarian hallways for, you know, the Dean's office. But, Mm -hmm. And Ava, she's 11, she says, she just kind of was looking and she goes, we don't want to take the time to build something beautiful. Oh. And, I, and I was like, that's an 11-year-old. And she said, we don't want to take the time to build something beautiful. Hmm. And I was like, I'm writing that down right now because I know what you mean and I agree with you. And so we were looking at the angles of the doorways and how they match the external like angularness of, of the building we're in externally. And then that pointed to these light fixtures, right? That had mm-hmm. these points, particular points to them and a, a kind of roundedness. Mm-hmm. And then it was amazing. So the way, so what, what, where I'm headed is the internal design corresponded with the externals of the architecture in such a mindful and profound way. Mm-hmm. But not only that, when you get out to the landscaping, so you get out and we're looking at the light fixtures that are like these lamp stands. And they matched something in this like pine tree to the, to the right of us. So you had this inorganic echoing and organic. And right next to that was like the cypress that matched the spire of the, one of the uh, major cathedral buildings there. And you could see that there was creating these sight lines that moved you through, through the upkeep of the bushes, the plants and the trees. Like the, there was a thorough vision that moved you through the internal space to the external space to mm-hmm. up to down. And then it corresponded with the sidewalks. I mean, it was, and, and then we're talking about, you know, it takes 20, 25 minutes to walk across campus because it's so big. Yeah. And that thoroughness was there virtually everywhere. Yeah. It was staggering. It was, it was, it was, um, and it, it caused me to realize that, there is potential in a unified vision mm-hmm. with a worldview. I'm, I'm not, you know, Catholic and I'm not going to go into Catholicism or, mm-hmm. but it's clear that there's two things. Like this is an old campus. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how old is Notre Dame, by the way? Did you, so you I was find? looking up some stuff. It's about 1,200 acres. Um, the first building, let's see if this says, it was founded in 1842. There you go. Um, but a built, the, I guess the first building had been built in 1831. Wow. So, yeah, super old. Super old. Um, very much, uh, yeah, steeped in time. And one of the things that's very interesting, just in a little bit of reading I, I saw, was that, um, you know, in most places, you have an old college campus. There's always the the cry for, uh, you know, hey, we need to modernize some yep. things. We need to, yep. we're going to put a new building in. It's going to look super flashy. Um, but Notre Dame is one of the campuses uh, across the country that actually, in the nineties was like, Hey, all this modernist stuff is like nice and all, but we'd like to actually retain uh, yep. kind of a holistic, yep. um, you know, um, a, a vision across the campus. Yep. So they, they veered back into a lot more kind of Gothic inspired exteriors. Yep. So, so that's apparent when you're looking and yeah. it looks like it was done yesterday. So the maintenance and the upkeep, whereas I know buildings in our city that are three years old that look like they're 10 years old. Yeah. Look like trash. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, it just, I guess, I guess I was just dumbstruck struck by a, we're, you know, we're in a culture right now where, um, 
there's a the opposite of that. It's all fractured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. There's 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 so much. I mean, like you you open up a, a can of worms with architecture because there's so much about it that's um, v- always been really compelling to me. So when you're talking about these uh, these lines and these fixtures and these spaces and they point to one another and they exist in some sort of harmony, some sort of unity. Um, you know, may get a few eye rolls out there when I mention this, but John Ruskin with the Seven Lamps of Architecture talks about this idea of truth in architecture. And his whole idea uh, in, in the text is that, um, like, ornamentation for the sake of ornamentation, like trompe l'oeil sort of stuff, like, it just, he doesn't see the point in it mm-hmm. because it feels like lies uh, because the buildings should exist in a way where you kind of uh, see what needs to be seen and the stuff that's there serves a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a utilitarian aspect to it. But also there's something about um, when you when you kind of strip away some of those things and you you actually go in without an assumption about what he means or, or what the ramifications are, what you start to see is you start to see somebody who's kind of calling for architecture to exist in such a way that it is a real thing in mm-hmm. a real world. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just, you know, how do we build a flashy thing, mm-hmm. but it's how do we build something that actually has a point and a purpose mm-hmm. in the place where it is. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a big idea. And that, that idea is limited to the extent of the underlying assumptions about whatever beliefs one holds. So like if you're a modernist, it's limited to the modernist vision. If you're Catholic, it, so, you know, when we're in this in Catholic environment, there's gargoyles, mm-hmm. there's statuettes of, um, you know, historical priests and um, monks yeah. and things like that. But they all work in the 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 theology of the um, the school, the campus, and the, the kind of Catholic theology of creation and how they think through things. So, um, you can admire it even if you're not like even if you're like I I could admire it even without not wanting my house to look specifically like that. Right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and so I think one of the big takeaways there for me is whatever you limit, whatever your worldview permits and doesn't permit will um, bear on how you think through internal, external, um, and then beyond. So like the internal workings of a, of a home versus the external face of the home and then the, you know, the, the structure of the architecture and how that sits in the local surroundings, you know, mm-hmm. the neighborhood or whatever. And even down to like, you know, so like the wood finishes on the inside, even if yeah. they become ornate in places, like it's, it's, um, they're not arbitrary decisions. They're, uh, there's a thoroughgoingness, but here's the rub though. That kind of thoroughgoingness requires competency. Yeah. And you know, when my daughter says, I don't think we want to take the time to make something beautiful anymore. You know, I agreed with her and I feel that pressure that I don't have enough time myself. Mm-hmm. And, but also um, we're at a point where we've lost capability in many ways uh, and comp- competency. So w- some of us couldn't if we tried. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the questions it raises is like uh, in a fragmented world, we, we just produce more fragmentation. Yeah. Um, but are we, are we left to that? Like, and um, what you unite around so like thinking about things, just thinking about a couple of things that unite around, like one thing that stood out to me was the, the football stadium. Yeah. It's massive. You mm-hmm. can tell there's money there oh, yeah. and there is like almost like a warship there. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like its own church building. 
is the oh, way yeah. I, the way I saw it. It was like kind of like out outpacing the cathedral that's actually there in <laughs> yeah, a lot of ways huge. and into an open sky. I mean, if I could wax on about mm-hmm. sports arenas and religion as sort of being a, a modern worship center, or mo- modern church kind of thing, mm-hmm. where people rally around a set of colors, set of jerseys, set of players, set of yeah. ideas that are very, that are great. I'm not an anti-sports guy, as you know, by a long shot. Um, but there's only so much depth. There's only so much depth to sports. Yeah. And so if we unite and we build architect, like I got to see Chicago's White Sox stadium. Mm-hmm. It's awesome, dude. Yeah. I loved it. It's amazing. But it's still, it's still limited to the scope of its surroundings and the sport of baseball. Mm-hmm. And I love baseball stadiums. Yeah. But the world, the worldview of baseball is insufficient to deal with the totality of the world we live in. So my point in in that is a lot of the things that we build life around are too small to encompass life, and therefore the work, the art we make, and the architecture we produce is grossly limited and um, uh, sort of inconsequential uh, in the inner workings. Like they don't actually affect each other in any any um, intended way uh past a superficial way it's kind of like yeah. it's kind of like how if i'm a denver broncos fan and i wear orange and blue jersey and it's juxtaposed with a sponsor let's say it's mountain dew sponsors the and i've got a little mountain dew sticker on my sleeve mm-hmm. it's really an arbitrary decision based on uh financial mutual financial support mm-hmm. and i've we determined the size of the 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 sponsor like a nascar sponsor but sports does this now you know in, in american sports yeah. and so it's like we got to find the right place to put this. It, it's it's formal, it's aesthetic, but it's really, really bare minimum. It, mm-hmm. It's it's insubstantial to the totality of what's available in life. If that makes sense. No, totally. Um, you know, and, and you know, within the vein of of architecture, I think of you know, you mentioned modernist architecture, and I think there are um, there there are folks who do modernist architecture very much in line with what you're talking about, um, and then there are folks who try to. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's uh where I'm from, Mississippi Gulf Coast, there's uh an art museum that is uh geared towards um a guy named George Orr. Mm-hmm. And he was called the Mad Potter of Biloxi. Um and he was a world renowned potter in the eighteen hundreds, did fantastic work. He had a very legit mustache. It extended from his face about six inches on either side, and he'd always twist it long. Dude looked like a psychopath. Mm-hmm but made amazingly beautiful stuff. So if you haven't ever heard of him, George Orr, O-H-R, the Orr O'Keefe Museum was designed um, after Katrina rolled through Mississippi. And when Katrina rolled through Mississippi, pretty much anything about a half mile inland was gone. Mm -hmm. And I I don't mean like sticks were, I mean like nothing was there. The 30-foot storm surge came in and anything that didn't get knocked over got sucked out to sea. Mm. So all these beaches that used to have like kind of old kind of beach mansions and things like that, they were all gone. Mm-hmm. And the only thing was left that was left were these withering and soon to die, unless really intervention came about, uh, old live oak trees. Mm-hmm. So you just had this, what looked, started to look like a highway running next to groves of live oaks. So when Frank Gehry was approached to design this museum, they said one of the things that's important to us is the one thing left on the beach are these two, three, four hundred year old oak trees. The museum has to sit on this spot of land, and we can't, we're not disturbing these trees. And some of them were like historically protected. Mm-hmm. 
And so what he did is he built this absolutely beautiful museum that anybody that has any knowledge of Frank Gehry, um, if, if they drive by it, they're like, okay, this is definitely done well. Mm-hmm. But the building grows up around these trees. Mm-hmm. It, it has this organic form mm-hmm. that just kind of snakes in between. None of the roots were bothered. None of the trees are impacted. And the building doesn't suffer. Mm-hmm. Like it is a sense where it doesn't feel like anything's lost. Yeah. But it comes from a point that there was actually a direction for the work that he was doing. Yeah. Um, and it took a long time for it to be conceived of, agreed upon, and yep. then built. Yeah. But when you go look at it, if you look up some images of the Oro Keith Museum, um, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about that the, uh, the museum itself just rises up. Hmm. Uh, among these oak trees. Yeah. And there's something about it um, that when you look at it, you don't look at it and say, huh, that's accidentally beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's that's accidentally, uh, <clears throat> there's, a, there's an accidental concern that happened here. Mm-hmm. Like it seems very much like these are the things when you start talking about art and design, these are the things that I think they really get me amped up and mm-hmm. nerd out about stuff because I'm like, look at the decision making mm-hmm. and the skill that went in to making this thing mm-hmm. as amazing and beautiful as it is. And almost every time I go home, I'll go back to the museum because they always have revolving uh, things coming sure. through the collection. Um, but also because I want to support those things that yeah. are actually there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just, uh, but then you can look around at other modernist architecture and you're like, oh, this is a stylistic choice that was just kind of dumped on the ground. Yeah, and yeah, that, yeah. You know, it doesn't serve a purpose. It doesn't seem like it's coming from any real ideas. Yeah. It doesn't seem like anybody cared to take the time to make it beautiful. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there's a singular vision of what beauty is. I'm not, I'm not using capital B beauty. I'm yeah. saying that like there, there's just things about it where like the common person just goes, that's kind of a turd. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard, man. I think, um, I mean, that's the thing. So like you say, modernism is a modernist aesthetic. If you look at, if you look at this kind of Gothic religious aesthetic, that's there. It's, there's not a, um, I think one of the things is there's not a universal aesthetic. Oh, no. Um, but but it is informed by a worldview. Totally. And it is. Inf- so, you know, I think one of the things that I think about is worldview. We talk about effects, talked about rethink the world. We thought we talked about those things. And one of the things I think about is your anthropology. Who are people? What are people? And that's a huge discussion we're not going to get into today, but um, it factors in. And then you have like... Um, the local people, the people that are local to the space where the, the thing's being made. And that may be a consideration. And so how do you balance the interplay between maybe say like a national audience and, and, a, and a local audience mm-hmm. and, and anthropologically? Like, and, and then there is, who are we? Who have we been and where are we headed? And you got to contend with those things. Like how does this live past this moment? Yeah. Um, and how does this live past uh, contemporary taste and sensibility. Cause one thing we know that I think is a problem is we are, um, we're perpetually dissatisfied. So taste change very quickly, mm-hmm. style changes as a result. And that's why we don't want to take the time to make anything beautiful. It's because we're, we, here's the thing. I mean, I think the main idea and we've hit it before, but I think the takeaway for me was we are shallower. Therefore everything else suffers. Mm-hmm. So we're not everybody, but just our sensibility is dwindling 
um, because our uh, ability to persevere into deeper things is dwindling. And so we, we build culture around lesser things and call it deep. Mm-hmm. And, and so then we have uh, less and less tension span for things. Therefore, like if we don't have the attention span, then we make things that accommodate our attention span, which is waning and becoming yeah. momentary. Mm-hmm. And so um, our, it, it demands a, um, you know, it demand, there's a point where you have to kind of stop and look at your assumptions about the world and ask and be brave enough to ask yourself, like, what do I believe and where did that come from? Where do my beliefs come from? And um, especially if you're an artist, like, are you just making what you saw your teachers make and what they taught in school? Mm. I'm not saying you're wrong for doing that. I'm just asking, have you checked in? I've had the check in and, and really vet is painful. It's hard. Cause you're like, sometimes you just like what you like and you don't want to think about it. Yeah. But if it's, it's helpful sometimes to take inventory to audit sort of your assumptions to kind of look at them and um, be brave and, and, and face down, like, Maybe some uh, ignorances or poor reflections, and it could lead to some better work. It could lead to some better conversations, and it could lead to some um, more enduring work. And I think that's one of the questions. I think that's what kind of came out of our uh, experience on the campus was just that whether I preferred it or not, there was an enduring presence in this space that was so clear that the grounds, the grounds folks could, could actually keep the grounds clear. Mm-hmm. Like the clarity meant the upkeep was clear. We build architecture now sometimes where it's, it's unclear, therefore the upkeep is unclear. Yeah. And the streets next to it are necessarily dirty because you know, the folded building matches the folded piece of paper on the floor that we call trash, and all of a sudden, you're like, they don't look much different from each other. <laughs> yeah. So the way we keep the, sleep, the streets clean there's a core, there's a correspondence there, um, but it comes from a clarity of vision and an execution. And so, uh, and, and, you know, and what that means is the willingness to know that sometimes, you know, like you're saying, sometimes they don't have meaning or consequence. It, it, it just could even just be that the person's, it just failed. Yeah. That there was intention. There was meaning. It just didn't work. Mm-hmm. It, it just, it, I've made more work that doesn't work with good intention than not. And so I think that's even a thing. It's like, what happens when there is good intention? It just fails. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you're talking about kind of like, think about like <clears throat> what it is you're actually believing and how that's like propagating things into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's also, um, I think we need to maybe even reevaluate some categories we have around the idea of utility. Because mm-hmm. um, when we talk about something like this, like we're always dealing in categories of utility. We just mm-hmm. may call them different things. Right. So, you know, it might be one of those things where um, the, uh, you know, utility is, um, oh, it's just useful. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but, but if, if, if all we are doing with our art is just like making statements, well, that's its usefulness. That's yeah. its utility. Yeah. yeah. Um, so utility is always a play. Um, I think it's, it's something that we try to ignore with other conversations, which part of a larger conversation else time, uh, another time elsewhere, but, um, Utility is always there. And so the question is, like, how are we maybe using uh, our ideas around utility in ways that actually, um, I, don't, I don't know, like uh, prevent our work from becoming better mm-hmm. or maybe uh, are shortchanging things? Yeah. So, um, you know, you, you could say, okay, like with the case of, of Notre Dame, uh, well, you know, the utility behind uh, designing something in such a way as to make it easy for landscapers to do mm-hmm. things. 
Well, if it's just left at that single utility, then I don't know that you get beauty out of that. Mm-mm. I don't know that you get to a place where you look at something and say, wow, this is marvelous. I think you look at something and you say, wow, this is easy to mow. Yeah. And I don't know that's what we're aiming for. And so... Um, well, know, yeah, I mean, the trees, I mean, so there is an anticipation of the kind of... Tr- like, there are some trees that are old. They're too yeah. huge to be <laughs> recent. Right. And so you can definitely see... Um, anticipation of, of growth of those things, but also working with what was already there. And so they become these constraints wedded to functionality, flow, mm-hmm. a campus, um, certain other kinds of sculptural features. And then, um, you know, it was funny, man, like the school was so nice in the way that it was when you walk by the uh, art part, they had some modern sculptures and they look like they just look dumpy and out of place. <laughs> they really didn't work yeah. in, you know, in the way that the Mountain Dew patch doesn't work on the the, foot, the orange football uniform. Like it, yeah, it yeah. just, it's there, and you can make intellectual concessions for it. Mm-hmm. But you're being for, you're you're force fed a uh, brute fact um, in this kind of uh, juxtaposition that works better conceptually than it does in actuality. And I think that's you know maybe my point with utility is that um, when our utility has more to do with concepts than mm-hmm. it does with the real world in which things live, I think yeah. a lot of things are going to get lost. It'll feel odd, mm-hmm. right? Um, it'll feel like um, you know the the modernist painting on the wall of the you know the the, the trailer that has like the 1970s shag carpet and musty yeah. couch. This is gonna be like, why is this here? It doesn't yeah. make sense. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to to say anything. And I, I don't know. Maybe part of me is saying like uh, some ideas that are not new to conversations we've had. But you know, this idea is like, do you, do we do we make do we make in reaction to the world we're in solely? Or do we make things that are in reaction to the world we're in and point it towards a a, a new one? Yeah. A, do we a make different do we, one, one? Yeah. That do you matter in some? That's way. right. Do you are you making a commentary for what is by highlighting the worst of what is, or is there any grounds to make what would be the future? And here's my here's here's the real here's this is for later, but I think this is a real conversation that's got to be had, and so I'm just gonna. I think um, I've been reluctant to say this in the past, so you, I haven't even said this to you yet, but, um, and I, I'm open to being corrected on this. My feeling is, so I used to say back in the day, like 10 years ago, um, when, 12 years ago when I was 14, whenever, when I first started teaching at VCU, and, and you'd get um, students that were like, I want to be like Rembrandt. And I'd say, well, if you want to be like Rembrandt, then you should probably look at Steve Jobs mm-hmm. because he's the painter of light with image in the technology of the day. Mm. Uh, and, and so, but it, so are you saying that or are you saying you want to paint like Rembrandt? Mm. And right away I was like, Oh, I, I wanted to paint like Rembrandt. It's like, yeah. cool. Um, but that's not who Rembrandt was. Rembrandt was working in at the high end of the primary technology of the day. Mm-hmm. So envisioning the world that, became if you will yeah so it, you're free to do whatever you want i don't have any judgment for that i think it's f- cool and fine to want to paint like rembrandt um but it's important to get clear on what you mean by that right mm-hmm. so take that idea forward i think the people that have most pull position over envisioning the world that is oftentimes and this is this is indicting myself and a lot of my friends and that's why i stayed to say it but i think it's filmmakers it's the people working in augmented reality. I think it's the people working in technology. 
Um, it's the software developers. It's the people working in, in AI and robotics. Mm -hmm. um, that is the, um, uh, you know, I was joking. Oh, gosh. I was going to say, like, you know, you could, you could almost say that technology could become tech totalitarian. Mm. Yeah. Um, I wrote it down. So, and so, uh, and the rest of us are dabbling in a fantasy of, of what our work does maybe. Mm. And I, I say that with a lot of hesitation and a lot of kind of fear and trembling because I'm not, this is, these are my inner thoughts that I'm just being uh, really forthcoming about and just saying, okay, who really has got pole position on what the future is going to look like? Mm. Well, it's, it's the virologist, <laughs> the vaccine maker, the uh, big yeah. tech. Um, um, and so how does art and design enter into that conversation? It's difficult, man, because so, so here's the, so this is the, the conundrum is the worldview informs what you do mm -hmm. and where you, you privilege. So does your worldview have a space for actually being in your studio, making a painting? Personally, mine does, but, um, but I have to reckon with who, where's the money going? who's making decisions and, and how does that affect us? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's kind of where I came to though. I mean, I, you know, you look at the science fiction filmmaker and they probably have more impact on what's made mm. than many of us as painters. Yeah. For better or worse. Like it's like, we got to take stock of what's actually happening, how society's built. And um, yeah, I'd say it's sort of tongue in cheek, but the tech totalitarianism kind of technocratic, it's real. Um, so anyhow, yeah. so I mean, it bears on the conversation, whereas like, you know, the Gothic era, what was informing the, the architecture, the religious beliefs of the day, right? And then, and then the royal, like how the intersection between religion and royalty and uh, upper class, like class systems. And, and, and um, there are, I think what is building our society is, is more driven towards power. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's why you see power struggles right now. And so um, I think what suffers is a lot of what we're talking about in this conversation is the uh, uh, kind of comprehensive uh, interplay or inner harmony, if you will, of a state of uh, making that flourishes human beings in their actual physical bodies mm -hmm. and takes stock of the passage of time, uh, the breaking down of the body, and doesn't try to um, rush us away from that seemingly absolute truth mm -hmm. by, you know, angling towards uh, transhumanism or becoming a robot or, yeah. right, turning over. Um, like, you know, when you drive, said it before, when you drive down the car and people are, are, there's enough people that would rather look at their phone that it just makes it more plausible that driverless cars are a fact of the future mm -hmm. um, because people's first desire prior to that is I need to look at my phone more while I'm driving. Yeah. And that's a very bizarre choice. <laughs> so right. yeah, totally. we're defaulting into, we're, we're turning over responsibility to something else to build our architecture. And our architecture is becoming small and in our pocket. And, you know, so anyhow, man, there's a whole, there's a whole discussion there. And I think partly maybe that's why I was so struck by this campus. Mm -hmm. um, the wood grain, you know, and it sounds like I'm, Go walking backwards, and you know, maybe I'm always guilty of doing this at this point in my life, but just that my 11 year old could make that statement 
because I mean, if anything, we're we 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 um we don't want to take time if we can fool ourselves into thinking what we need is at the click of a button. Yeah, because that doesn't take any time. Mm-hmm. And then even when it does, you get a you know you glitch or something for two seconds. It's like all hell breaks loose. You're like. Mm-hmm. I'm so ticked right now. My my internet speed's slower. So now we got to get 5G. You know, it's like, and then we're yeah. going to get 10G and you're going to be like a translucent being because the <laughs> it's all passing through you to the point that you're a ghost. Nirvana awaits. Yeah, Nirvana awaits through technology. But but seriously though, like who, you know, um, I'm just saying, man, I, I think we're around a lot of creative types and depending on who you talk to, they're really are in one of those two big spaces. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that they talk to each other very much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you're talking, the thing that keeps going through my head is like, I'd rather write the book than write the footnotes, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And if you look at the way uh, a lot of large books are written that have footnotes, like there'll usually be different people writing the footnotes. Mm -hmm. These like unnamed researchers adding their little two cents about this thing that needs to be explained more. Um, But I want to write the book, you know, I want to, I want to, be the thing that people are involved with that they care about that's important to their life. I don't want to be that little footnote that I don't want to be contribute to a footnote that people just pass over. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and that takes, that takes thinking beyond, um, utility. It takes thinking beyond, uh, immediacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it takes work that, you know, you hear about the whole, cliche thing about what da Vinci and how many years it took him to yeah. freaking paint the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's like year after year after year going back, hating it, doing it again, doing more. Yeah. And that's, that's just time like, to make something beautiful. Yeah. To get intimate with something. I, maybe this is just not the right way to end this, but I was reminded of the, um, the way art can impact mm-hmm. what actually happens and developers and tech folks said one of the biggest kind of, um, problems for them came when, Iron Man came out and it showed Tony Stark just touching the air and moving stuff around. Yeah. Cause it was so convincing that it created a consumer demand. Mm. So it generated a problem and a pressure and a money put towards solving that problem, which is like at the, you know, nearly an insolvable problem. Like you just it hadn't happened again, yeah. but, but everybody started to get pushed that way. So this is crazy. Yeah. So, so this idea that, um, that art can drive, um, what happens mm-hmm. is really important, and it, and oftentimes it's encapsulated in sto- encapsulated in story, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's like uh, it's like so so even taking the time to write a good story, uh, requires you to actually have something to say. By the way, like just to I know dancing around, but like what the statistics on podcasts? It's a great example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the out was it? I forget what those stats were, but. It's it's nuts. I mean, it's it's more or less like uh, if if you get to six episodes, you're a superstar. Yeah, and if you get to twenty, you're in the top one percent. You've yeah. done twenty episodes. So, but the hilarity is the at like the eighty or ninety percent of all podcasts get to about three episodes. Yeah, yeah. And I laugh because I was like, you know why, right? It's because people they 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 see it in an instant and go, well, that'd be easy. We just talk about stuff. Yeah. And then they get up there and they have nothing to talk about. Oh yeah, I forgot. I don't have anything. I don't to have say. anything to say. Oh, yeah. And so, how does I don't have anything to say play out in art? How does it play out in story writing? Yeah. So when we have nothing to say, because we haven't done the taken the time, there's nothing to build. Right. And when there's nothing to build, nothing to say, something or someone else will come in and do it for you. Mm. 
that's what we're living through. Yeah. And that's where the, you know, and so like to juxtapose it is uh, whether it's agreeable or not, when you go to this campus, the architecture, the, the artwork, it's all saying something clearly and it's in chorus. So it's in chorus. So the whole campus sings in chorus what, it, what it's about. Mm-hmm. And it's clear. So it frees you to agree or disagree. Yeah. We're not um, able to contend with that. So instead of contending with it, we just bury it and ignore it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's uh, unfortunate because for the, the next generations are going to inherit, you know, T2 you know, the, the Terminator apocalypse scene, you know what I mean? mean, Like really, because, because you have to borrow your vision from somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know? So I don't know. I just, those were the musings of, uh, those car thoughts, right? Car thoughts, man. When you got a lot of time in the car, I feel that. Yeah. I I love a good road trip. So, uh, car thoughts are fantastic. They, they take you good places. Yeah. Um, but you gotta have enough hours hours. with butt in a seat. Well, my, uh, my, my wife said one thing is funny is like, I am a walker, so I actually do my best thinking if I'm walking or in the shower, but always historically yeah. it's been a walking. And so I used to walk the campus and, and I could get prepared for classes that way, teaching and all that. So, um, and I was like, well, driving is like walking on steroids. Yeah. So if I'm given enough time, I can start to really process things. I got nothing else to do. And I'm mm-hmm. super, I am like the kind of person that will be, I was inspired by the landscape, every landscape, Ohio, Indiana, the smallest towns, just inspiring to me, man. Mm-hmm. People, the ingenuity of, of the human spirit was uh, really on display and the faithfulness in, in the small nooks and crannies of, of different parts of America yeah. that you never hear about. There's no Instagram page for, mm-hmm. but it's actually the reality. It's, it's more real than a person's duck face on Instagram. Yeah. Like the work you did of standing in front of a machine and faking that you were doing work and then you left when you got the photograph. Like here are real places that real people built. Yeah. And uh, it, it just kind of stoked a longing for the humility to take the time to build something beautiful. Yeah. You know? That's real, man. Yeah. Uh, it's tough. And it's a, it's a good call for everybody. Yeah. Because um, I think, you know, somewhere deep down, that's that desire, that longing is probably somewhere back in our history mm-hmm. um, for all of us. Shout out to my daughter Ava's sage insight at eleven. Yeah, for real. Those old uh, her 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 wizened years of of eleven. Yeah, <laughs> good on her. So yeah, that's uh that's it. You know, again, another conversation starter. Uh, be happy with it, be pissed with it, but whatever it is, you know, at least have a conversation <laughs> Let us know. from it. Send us your your uh, corn corn nut uh, portraits. <laughs> that's right. Please do. <laughs> and on that note, we love you guys. You're a fantastic audience, and we will catch you next time. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco